Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Jeff Fletcher. Jeff covers the Angels for the Orange County Register. Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Well, Jeff, I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. Uh, When I was a a little kid, I wanted to be a doctor until I realized that required way too much school. So uh, then I said, well, geez, I like baseball and uh, they got to pay somebody to go to baseball and write about them. So ever since I was about 13 or 14 years old, that's been all I wanted to do is, uh, is write about baseball. And I've been lucky enough to do it for 21 years now. You cover the Angels. It was revealed last night that the Angels are one of the finalists to land Japanese superstar Shohei Otani. What do you think the Angels would be getting in Otani, and how would they plan on using him? It's hard to say. I feel like he's probably uh, about a number one and a half or two starter. Uh, You know, these guys come over from Japan and some of them turn out to be great. Some of them turn out to be overrated. You never can be too sure. One thing I did notice about his time in Japan is he walked a lot of guys. So I'm not sure how much of an issue that would be coming over here. Uh, certainly, he'd be good enough to be in the top two in the Angels rotation, uh, along with Garrett Richards. Uh, as for the offensive part, that is really hard to say because I think it's a lot harder to evaluate a hitter from Japan because they're obviously... Uh, when you evaluate a pitcher, it doesn't really matter who the competition is. You can just go by the stuff. But when you're evaluating a hitter, it's a lot more results-based, and it does depend on what kind of pitching you're facing. So uh, I think that it's going to be really tough for him to be uh, an impact hitter in the big leagues, especially if he's not doing it full-time, which he's not going to do because he's got to focus on pitching primarily. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me if the the hitting thing only goes on for two, three months or you know, one season or something like that, and then it, it ends because it, you know, just wasn't worth having him divide his time when he's really primarily a pitcher. But it'll be interesting to see no matter what happens. The Angels have Albert Pujols locked in at designated hitter. Where would they even play Otani in the field or at, with a bat? Well, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that no team is really going to play him in the field. I think uh, he would just DH in the American League and just hit when he's pitching and uh, maybe pinch hit in the National League. Because uh, he didn't, he hasn't played in the field in three years in Japan. So it, that's a tough adjustment to ask a guy to make, in addition to everything else he's got to adjust to coming over to the U.S. Uh, Albert Pujols, uh, as you mentioned, is kind of locked in at DH, but the Angels feel like he's gotten a lot healthier in the last year since his last, he's a, now a year away from the last time he had surgery. So uh, I think he's lost some weight. He's gotten in better shape. They think he can play first base a little more frequently in 2018. And if you're only talking about two days a week, maybe, that Otani with DH, you know, can Pujols play first base two days a week or, you know, play first base one of those days and sit out one of those days, I think that's probably a more manageable thing. That's probably what they're looking at. Well, let's talk about Pujols for a minute. Pujols is coming off his worst year in the majors. It's one of the worst years that a future Hall of Famer has ever produced. Uh, he's in that company with Lou Brock's penultimate year and Craig Biggio's final year. He was bad last year. What can he do to regain his form, just his 2016 form, never mind his peak form? Yeah, I think that they they really feel like one of the major issues he's faced is that he's had surgery two years in a row in the winter 
on his his feet or uh, ankles, feet, toes, all that stuff down there, uh, his lower half. And uh, and it's been three surgeries, including one on his knee, like in the last four years. So this year they feel like if he doesn't have any surgery, and so far he hasn't had anything, that he can get himself in a lot better shape, and uh, that can make a big difference. If he's he's got his legs under him, you know, that's a very important thing for a hitter. I think the Angels are hoping that if he has this whole winter to just work out and get himself in better condition, he can come out next year and take a step back towards being, you know, like you said, just what he was in 2016 even, let alone forget what he was in, you know, 2008. But, uh, you know, basically if he does what he did in 2016, that would be good enough for the Angels. And uh, I think they still have some hope that he can do that. Now, if he has this healthy winner and gets in shape and it still performs like he did last year, then the Angels are going to have a really difficult question to face because uh, that's a tough thing to put in the middle of your lineup and to pay $30 million to, you really can't move him. Uh, it becomes a much more difficult question for them. So 12 months from now, if we're having the same conversation, I think it, it's going to be a very difficult situation for the Angels. How much of a leash do you think they give Pujols this year, considering the season he's coming off of? Will they let him start at DH or at first base all year, even if his production is similar to what it was last year? You know, it depends what the alternatives are. That's always the thing. Is it's, it's a two, two-part two question. Is uh, How good is this guy, and how good is somebody else that we'd replace him with? Last year, one of the reasons Pujols stayed where he was was the Angels didn't have much else going on. I mean, they didn't have some big slugger sitting on the bench that was losing playing time because Albert Pujols was going out there. So, you know, now the Angels have Justin Upton up here, which is one more good hitter that pushes Pujols down in the lineup a little bit at least, even if not to the bench. It's still, I don't see how in 2018 they could end up with such a good lineup that Albert Pujols is not one of their nine best hitters. Uh, I could see him ending up hitting like sixth or something if uh if he's not going to perform but but like i said they're still hopeful that the conditioning thing will help we'll see what happens well let's talk about mike trout for a little bit when did the angels actually realize what they had in him oh i i don't think it happened until uh he got to the big leagues in 2012 he came up in 2011 and he looked kind of just like you know lots of other top prospects that you see where he's kind of overmatched. He's got tools, but he's not ready. You know, I mean, look at a guy like Byron Buxton with twins. That was like the number one prospect in baseball. And he came up and it was kind of like, you know, meh, but then it took him a while and he's finally caught up. And just at, at the very end of this year, he's finally looked pretty good. Well, Mike Trout made that adjustment very quickly. And when he came back in 2012, he was hit the ground running, and he was basically great from as soon as they put him in the lineup on an everyday basis, and he became their leadoff hitter. And uh, there was just been no question really ever since then how good he was. And uh, as he's piled one season after another, I think the consistency has been the most amazing thing. Is that there's a lot of great players in this game that still have kind of bad years once in a while. Look at a guy like Buster Posey, Andrew McCutcheon. I mean, these are all like shortlist great players in the game today and they have off years mike trout has not had an off year he hasn't even had anything close to that so that's what's you know and he's still so young he's just turned 26 that's what's most amazing to everybody 
does Trout realize the significance of his start? Does he realize the kind of history that he is making? Well, you know, we always throw these things at him and ask him. It's like, uh, hey, you know, you're the first guy since, you know, Ty Cobb, Mickey Mantle, Jimmy Fox, all these names that we throw at him. And he just kind of like, I don't think he gets it. I mean, I don't think any of us do, really, when you when you think about that. How could you comprehend that, really? But he just sort of smiles and goes, yeah, it's flattering, I, you know, to hear your name with those guys. But I'm not thinking about any of that right now. I'm just trying to, you know worry about what's happening right now and trying to win with the angels and that's all you really can do one of the things that hits for me is uh i'm doing my hall of fame stuff which i think we're going to talk about here in a little bit and you see mike trout's name pop up already on these like all-time war lists and uh you know he's already showing up there like with his career wars in the 50s or something like that which is amazing because that's basically you know you start to talk about Hall of Famers when they get to be in like the 60s. And he's almost there. And he's not even, he's got four more years to go before he's even eligible. It's incredible. That's absolutely true. Well, let's shift into the Hall of Fame talk a little bit. Last year, you voted for Bagwell, Bonds, Clemens, Vlad Guerrero, Edgar Martinez, Mike Mussina, Tim Raines, Ivan Rodriguez, Kurt Schilling, and Manny Ramirez. You filled your ballot with 10 slots. You had to drop, uh, let's see, you dropped Sheffield, Jeff Kent, and Hoffman. So you have three spots left on your ballot this year, assuming you vote for the same seven. Who are those three going to? Well, I don't know yet. I'm still kind of working through it. And uh, I would say probably Bonds, Clemens, Chipper Jones, Jim Tomey, Edgar Martinez, Mike Mucine and Kurt Schilling are the easy ones. I feel like those are all kind of, there's no argument against any of those guys as far as I can come up with. Edgar Martinez I had not voted for for a while, but finally last year I came around and voted for him. And uh, he's just, you know, the, uh, the arguments against him that, that you know, because he's a DH and maybe didn't have some of the quantity of some other guys are all reasonable, but just when you look at how good he was, just as a hitter, it's to me that puts him over the line. So anyway, I've got those guys for sure. And then after that, I'm still kind of uh, debating uh, probably five other guys for the rest of that. And uh, every day I think about it, it changes a little bit. So, and the other guys are all sort of, uh, you know, they're all great. You can't argue with any of them, but you know, I got to cut it somewhere. So, that's what's difficult about all this. Well, it's become a big mess. The ballot is overcrowded with deserving candidates. It's not just the PED issue. It's because I think the the line of what borderline is has shifted dramatically. The idea that people like Schilling and Mucina and Edgar Martinez are borderline, I think, is silly. And that's not what the Hall historical standards are. It's people like Jeff Kent and Fred McGriff, who I think are legitimate borderline. But there is a separation between there. And Johan Santana, I think, is borderline, too, for different reasons. He was so good for a short period of time. But it's not just the PED issue. It's it's also a perception of talent. Why do you think that so many overqualified candidates with no connections to PEDs are struggling to gain momentum? Well, I think part of it is... Uh is sort of the familiarity and maybe back in the old days uh you didn't see the warts as much on a guy and you just thought how great they were uh now we see every day on tv and we get guys analyzed to the nth degree and uh i think that it's 
uh, more people are going, well, well, Kurt Schilling is not Sandy Koufax. And I go, no, but, you know, he's just as good as 30 other pitchers that are in the Hall of Fame. So why are we not voting for him? So I don't know. I, I think that's probably part of the reason. And, uh, you know, like you said, the ballot is super crowded. And I think one thing that people uh, forget or need to realize is that just drawing this line between the top 1% and the top 2% in anything is really, really difficult to do. And you can, you can sit there and the longer you analyze something, the more you realize that they're just right there on the line. And the more you analyze, it doesn't really push them to one side or the other. You just look closer and closer and closer and they're still right there. So it, it becomes a very, very difficult uh, process to go through. Even forgetting the whole steroids thing. Just if you go on their performance, it's very difficult. Well, speaking of the steroid issue, Joe Morgan sent out a letter to every BBWAA member voting for the Hall of Fame, urging them to not vote for any of the steroid guys. I was curious what you thought of the letter in general and if it will influence or affect your ballot at all. I did give it a lot of thought. First of all, I thought it was very peculiar that the letter came via the Hall of Fame. Because the Hall of Fame has, for all these years, we've been asking, like, well, what do you want us to do with the steroids question? It's your Hall of Fame. Do you want us to not vote for these guys? Do you not want them in the Hall of Fame? And they've always said, oh, no, it's your ballot. You do what you want. We trust you. But now we've got the Hall of Fame sending this letter to us that has got Joe Morgan's name on it, but it's not just it didn't come from Joe Morgan. It came from the Hall of Fame. It's not just Joe Morgan responding to a question in you know, New York Times. So it makes you wonder, well, is this the Hall of Fame's position? Do they want us to uh, not vote for the, the steroid guys? And if that's the case, you know, maybe I should change my personal opinion because, you know, it is their Hall of Fame and we have to go by their rules. You know, for example, Pete Rose has never even been on the ballot because the Hall of Fame made a rule that he couldn't be on it. So it doesn't matter what my opinion is. It's their thing. So I start to think, well, is this the same? Do they just not want Barry Bonds in there? And so I should not vote for Barry Bonds even if I want him in there. But then the more I thought about it, I thought, well, I'm not going to reward their sort of passive-aggressive campaign. If they really have a problem with Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds being in there, they need to make a rule in writing that those guys are not in there or take their names off the ballot or take the ballot away from me. Short of doing those things, I'm going to vote for the guys that I think should be in the Hall of Fame. And uh, my opinion basically is, first of all, it doesn't even bother me that much. The guys use steroids compared to all the other terrible things that a lot of guys in the Hall of Fame have done. I think guys in at that high level of sports push the envelope for as long as there have been sports. That's what they do. And I don't think that you know doing something that nobody was preventing them from doing, that was borderline encouraged for them to do so they could be better at baseball. I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. So basically that's why I don't really care. And I vote for uh, even Manny Ramirez vote for all the guys. Yeah. I think the letter was sort of blatant gerrymandering. I think they were trying to influence the vote. I think that I think the hall doesn't want the steroid guys in. And I think they haven't wanted that from the beginning. And when they've been saying to the writers, we trust you to make that decision, well, it turns out they only trust you to make that decision if it's the one they agree with. And 
I think the Hall has mishandled the steroid issue from the beginning. I think if they really didn't want these guys in, they just would have never put them on the ballot. I would have disagreed with that, but at least they would have been saying, we're not putting Bonds or Clemens or McGuire or Sosa or Manny on the ballot until we can further figure out what's going on and let time reflect or whatever it is, or just keep them off for as long as they want. But to have the writers make this choice and have writers for half a decade be saying, what should we be doing? And now all of a sudden for them to be saying, don't vote for any of these guys. I think it's ridiculous. And I think it's blatant that they're trying to say, we don't want Bonds and Clemens in. Yeah. And I mean, if they would just, uh, it's, you know, like, first of all, like I said, it's their museum. They can put in the people they want. And if they really don't want Bonds and Clemens in there, and they made a rule or took them out or took their names off the ballot, I would say, you know, fine, it's it's your museum. You can have who you want. What bothers me is when they, on one, one side, say, well, it's your decision, but on the other side, they say, well, we really don't want you to make that decision. That's like, you know, like I said, the kind of passive-aggressive thing that's frustrating. And I don't know why the Hall, I, I've talked about this, uh, you know, I said this on the first podcast episode I did with Bob Ryan, and Bob Ryan from the Boston Globe was very, like, adamant at the time, like, these guys shouldn't get in. And I was like, well, why doesn't the Hall just put them in, the deserving players in, and then acknowledge that they used? And then he's like, well, if they did that, of course they should be in. I don't see how that's not what a museum should be doing. I don't know of a museum that runs away from history more than the Baseball Hall of Fame, but I think that's kind of a shame. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about baseball players here. You know, <laughs> and a lot of the guys, like if I, I have a son, a 14-year-old son, if I took him to the Hall of Fame and I walked him down the, the aisle to, to talk to all the players or to look at all the players and who came up to Barry Bonds and uh, I would just tell him Barry Bonds was a great baseball player, but he also did some things he shouldn't have done and was not a great person. The same as Ty Cobb, the same as, you know, 30 other guys in there that did Kirby Puckett was you know, exposed himself to some woman in a parking lot of a shopping mall. I mean, would I rather have my son do that or use steroids? I mean, come on. It's, it's kind of ridiculous that we're holding them to this standard, especially when it was a standard that nobody held them to during their playing career. And you voted for Manny last year, so I guess the answer is no here. But do you distinguish at all between players that used before testing went in place and after it went in place? Well, you know, initially when this whole issue came up, I... I thought to myself that I would make that distinction because I think it is a valid distinction. And I think that I understand that a lot of people do make it. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, the Barry Bonds guys, they were definitely, there was no major league baseball didn't care what they did. Manny Ramirez is different. But then the more I thought about it, I thought, well, you know, if you look at Manny, really, he, uh, he played like six years under testing before he got popped and his numbers all those years were great. So it's probably reasonable to think that he, he probably only did it at the end, you know, when he was 37 years old and he'd had a great career up till then. So, you know, to me, he was, he was probably like a, an Andy Pettit kind of guy who, who might've just done a little something too late and, you know, like I said, even even if he did, it just doesn't bother me that much. I mean, he was a great hitter. His numbers are ridiculous. So that's why I ended up voting for him. Uh, although it's interesting to note that another guy like Sammy Sosa, for example, I've never voted for Sammy Sosa uh, because, to me, he was sort of a, a one-dimensional guy. 
And that one dimension was probably very much because of using steroids. Uh, I don't think he was ever a great hitter in any sense. I think he was just a guy who hit a lot of home runs. So that's why I never voted for Sammy Sosa. It's not because of the steroids. It's because if you kind of adjust his career for the steroids, I think he comes up a little short. Uh, I just think his he, he compiled a lot of home runs, basically, is all he did. Whereas Manny Ramirez, I think, was a much better hitter. Even Gary Sheffield was a much better hitter, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't have Sosa's player page in front of me, but I think his OPS plus is around 125, somewhere in that range. Right. And 25% above average is like obviously very good, and he's like I think a 55 win player. But considering a guy with 600 home runs, you would expect both of those numbers, his WAR total and his OPS plus, to be significantly higher than they are. Right. And all these other guys that we're talking about, Hall of Famers, you know, with, with Edgar Martinez and and Vlad Guerrero and and uh, Larry Walker and all these kind of guys, they're all in the 140s. So that's a pretty big gap. So to me, that's that's justifiable to not vote for Sammy Sosa. I'm curious to get your thoughts also that the last year, the writers proposed a, a change that would make all ballots public starting this year. Or maybe they did this two years ago. Whenever they did it, this was supposed to be the year that all ballots were to be made public. And it was something like 90% approved this. And the Hall just vetoed this recently. They said, nope, you can still remain anonymous if you choose. What do you think about that? Yeah, I was not. In, I... I uh did not appreciate the hall doing that because uh, it was pretty clear that the writers wanted them to be public. I think that we make our annual awards, which are entirely under our control. There are awards and we handle everything, MVP and Cy Young, that kind of thing. We've been for six or seven years now publicizing every vote of every single ballot. And I think that we like to view ourselves in kind of a way that we have a lot of transparency and we're uh, accountable to people and if you can't explain why you voted a certain way you shouldn't be voting that way and so i don't think that uh i think that a lot of us felt that it should be the same for the hall of fame that we're sort of responsible you know almost like uh members of congress who you have they have to be their votes aren't secret either because they're accountable to people because they are the ones that are voting on behalf of all these other people who can't so we're sort of doing the same thing, and a lot of us felt like we should be accountable. And for the Hall to uh, basically reject that, you know, it just looks like another way that they're trying to protect the voters that want to that want to vote against the steroid guys and not have to explain why. Because, you know, there, it's, it's not so easy as just, you know, the Manny Ramirez guys who are suspended – you know, then you're also talking about guys who, oh, we just have suspicions, and it's hard to publicly explain. Well, I'm not going to vote for this guy because I think he did it, even though I don't have any proof. That's hard to, you know, justify in some cases. And uh, if you can do it anonymously, then you don't have to justify it. So, I think the hall was trying to protect those people. Yeah, I agree. And there's a big difference. There was a huge difference last year between the public and private discrepancy and how they voted on the steroid issue. Private ballots held where there was, I think it was like 20% difference on Bonds and Clemens. And I think this is also related to a few years ago, the writers also suggested to expand the 10 slot limit to 12. And the hall said no. And I think that's also related to the steroid issue as well. And I think them truncating the amount of time that players are on the ballot from 15 years to 10, I think this is all because they've been trying to get these guys, uh, the PED guys, to fall off the ballot. And honestly, I think it's going to work. 
I think the Morgan letter will influence people. I was never convinced that Bonds and Clemens were going to get any anyway. I think there's enough people who say no, never, ever will I vote for anyone with those connections. And I see the Morgan letter will influence, you know, even if it's 5% of voters, I think Bonds and Clemens are toast. I think they're going to stall out and age off. Yeah, I don't know about that. I, I think that uh, I think there's probably a lot of the majority of the writers probably are like me and just think I'm going to vote how I want to vote unless you take my ballot away. So, uh, you know, plus we're going to we're getting new writers every year. Every year there's another new batch coming in of, you know, 15 or 20 guys and uh, another 15 or 20 guys are aging off. So the percentage of voters is going to get a little younger every year, too. So, you know, Bonds and Clemens are now like 52, 53 percent, something like that. They have, I think, about four or five years left. So uh, it'll be real interesting to see uh, where their numbers go uh, in the future. But uh, and, and if they if they get in, then, you know, all bets are off. Then it's tough to uh, to justify anybody not getting in. The last player I want to ask you about is controversial for no fault of his own, but Omar Vizquel. He's a guy who was excellent defensively, but by wins above replacement, wins above average, OPS plus falls well below Hall of Fame standards. Yet I do think he passes that sort of infamous sniff test with a lot of people. Where do you stand on Omar Vizquel? Well, I actually covered the Giants for the uh, about three years that he played for them. And uh, this was obviously past his prime, but he was still... Great. He was the greatest shortstop I'd ever seen in my life until Andrew Simmons, who is also ridiculous. And I had probably believed uh, for while watching him and in the subsequent four or five years that I would vote for him when the Hall of Fame time came around. But now that I've actually gotten to it and I, I start to look at some of the, the defensive metrics, they maybe look like he wasn't as good as... I thought he was, and I, and I have just let me just say first of all, with all these guys whose Hall of Fame cases are based a lot on defense, and we're talking about besides Omar Vizquel, you got like Scott Rowland and Andrew Jones. They're very difficult because everybody knows the defensive metrics are not they're not as good as the offensive and pitching stuff, so they're you know questionable at best. But they're all we have. So I mean, there. How else am I supposed to tell if? Omar Vizquel was as good a shortstop as Ozzie Smith. I mean, I don't know how anybody can really tell other than the defensive metrics, and the defensive metrics aren't great. So it just makes it a difficult case for those guys, and I think it's going to be difficult for anybody whose case is based on defense nowadays because we know the eyeballs are not necessarily accurate, and we know the defensive metrics are not necessarily accurate either. So what do we have? We have offense, so you're going to go by offense. So... Right now, uh, it does not look like I would vote for Omar Vizquel, but uh, certainly I'm interested to, uh, I'm probably going to talk to people as much as I can who may have seen Vizquel and Ozzie Smith to compare them, because I obviously was a little too young to, uh, to really have appreciated Ozzie Smith when he was playing, but if I get enough people that tell me, yeah, Omar Vizquel was just as good as Ozzie Smith, then I'm certainly going to consider him a lot more despite what the metrics say, but it's, it's a really difficult question for for him and Jones and Scott Rowland. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I, I th- you know, people forget this with Smith, but Smith was also an exceptional base runner, and Vizquel was not. And Vizquel uh, was not as good offensively as Smith was when compared to the offense that was going on of his era. 
but I think I saw this on Twitter recently that even if you added all of Ozzie Smith's defensive run saves to Vizquel's war, so you gave him the same credit you give Smith for defense, he's still only a 56-win player at that point, and that puts him a lot closer to the line, but still falls well short. I think Ozzie's well into the 70s. There's still a big separator between those two players. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point. I mean, I, I think that... Uh... He may be uh, the Jack Morris of our uh, era, <laughs> that you have two kind of conflicting sides talking about how he's going to do in the Hall of Fame voting. Uh, I love the guy, and I think he was great, but it's just really hard to to compare one guy to another guy defensively uh, from era to era. Hopefully this will change, by the way, as now we have the StatCast stuff, and we haven't really seen it for infielders yet. Hopefully that's coming. But maybe 10 years from now, or when we have guys whose entire careers have been played from, you know, 2014 forward, we'll have definitive, finally, defensive numbers to compare them to each other, at least, even if not to compare them to Ozzie Smith. You've been listening to Jeff Fletcher. Jeff covers the Angels for the Orange County Register. You can find him on Twitter at Jeff Fletcher OCR. Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Sure. Thanks for having me.